Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Hofstra Morning Wake Up Call. We're here today with uh, Dr. Carl Schlossner. He's the head of climate science at Climate Analytics and the group leader at Humboldt University, Berlin. Thank you for joining us today. Hope you're doing well. Yeah, pleasure to be here. Good morning. So you do a lot of research in general about climate and things like that. Do you just want to go over an overview of your research and what you do in your profession? Yeah, I'm, I'm doing a broad engagement on, on different topics in climate science. You know, it's a very broad and interdisciplinary question. We are looking at how we are already changing our planet today, what evidence we, we can find in that regard. And, you know, the climate crisis is something that's very much upon us today. It's nothing that's going to happen in the far distant future. You'll see it signs all over the globe and we see it ever more clearly emerging. Indeed, the scientific community is increasingly more certain that we are probably currently already experiencing the hottest period in probably more than 100,000 years of sustained warming. And we can see the effects everywhere. We can see increased extreme events like heat waves and wildfires, extreme precipitation and flooding, more intense uh, tropical cyclones, but also, you know, more gradual changes like ever-changing seasons, melting glaciers, melting ice sheets, changes in ocean circulation and, and other things. And indeed, we did for example, a big machine learning based study of all the evidence out there on climate impacts, reviewing more than 100,000 different peer reviewed publications all over the globe. And we found that a vast majority of global population, more than 85%, are currently already experiencing impacts of climate change on a day to day basis documented in the scientific literature. So um, this is some of the elements that I'm, I'm, I'm working on. And then I'm, of course, asking myself, what can we do to avoid the climate catastrophe? So to meet the goals of the Paris Agreement, to limit global warming to one and a half degrees, and also outline the benefits of doing so. So with, with your research that you do in terms of you know, things on the climate and things like that, um, one thing that you tend to write about a lot specifically is the 1.5 degrees Celsius limit. I don't know if you want to explain more about that or what that is. Yes, of course. So um, it is one indicator, so to say, that we use uh, um, for kind of to measure the, the planetary health is the global mean temperature. And if you want to think about it, maybe think about your body temperature. You have a healthy body temperature between 36 and 37 degrees Celsius. Bear with me, I'm not so good in kind of doing on-the-fly calculations in Fahrenheit, so I might stick to a European, <laughs> a European unit here. Apologies. But if we have heightened body temperature, we not feel well. And if we have more than... 38.5 degrees Celsius, we are definitely sick. And it's a little bit like that with, with our planetary health. The more we increase, increase the global thermostat, the more unhealthy we are feeling on this planet. The more impacts we are seeing of climate change, the more we are moving outside the weather and climate conditions that we're used to, that our cities are built to sustain, that our ecosystems can deal with, uh, and so on. And we are increasingly identifying that around one and a half degrees and beyond that level, climate impacts becoming ever more severe. So to be very clear, this, this limit is not a scientific limit. There's not a scientific council in the world that's saying, this is what you need to do. It is a political limit. And that's probably even more powerful because the leaders of this world have committed themselves in the Paris Agreement to uh, uh, limit global temperature rise to that level in order to avoid the most dangerous impacts of climate change. So they have looked at the scientific evidence, scientists have written thousands of pages of um, scientific assessments provided in policymakers and so on. And this is kind of the outcome of it. It's a bit like a, a focal point of the debate. It is a number that helps to guide climate action. And therefore it's quite important to kind of uh, further outline what the implications of, for example, exceeding uh, such a warming limit are. 
And you mentioned politics, how this has become a political issue. Do you think that our politicians in our world are taking this issue as seriously as they should? And do you think that politics belong in science and climate change? If you want to solve this global climate crisis, it can only be a political solution. So the answer to your second question is absolutely yes, only if a political solution and a political global solution. So really a solution that takes everyone, brings everyone on board and bridges also political gaps between countries that may have frictions for other reasons, can be, success, uh, can we be successful to uh, tackle the climate crisis. So I think it's, it's and, and there is not just one kind of politician, right? There are a lot of politicians who take this crisis very seriously. And I think it's very encouraging to see changes in the global landscape in all countries uh, uh, people speaking up and, and you know, we're seeing increasing climate action all over the globe. And then there are legates. And then there are even people who still deny that there is something like human-made climate change, although the scientific evidence is, is absolutely certain. It's like denying gravity. So, so there is not a black and white picture. And I think there's a lot of dynamic in the political sphere. And I want to touch on one point that, that probably is quite important in terms of this global balance of, of these questions. It's we have already caused a lot of climate change. And the reason or the main driver of climate change is carbon dioxide, the most common greenhouse gas, it's the key source that warms our planet. And this is accumulating in the atmosphere like in a bathtub. So as long as we keep emitting CO2, we keep warming the planet. And this means we need to get to net zero CO2 emissions in order to stop global warming. And this is also increasingly accepted as a political goal. But this also means all countries all over the world need to contribute to that. It's not enough if just half of the countries actually go to net zero and the other half keeps emitting, the planet will still warm. So the, yeah. only uh, the only chance we have is really to do this together. And that's why the political process around international diplomacy, the Paris Agreement and the climate negotiations is so crucial for it. Right. And going back to the beginning, when you began to describe the conditions we're seeing right now, including wildfires and rising temperatures, what can that look like? And what are some projections in the 2030s of what we could be dealing with if we don't stop this problem actively and efficiently? From where we are today, we are seeing that we are experiencing increasingly unprecedented climate change. So if you had a heat wave in the, uh, in the northwestern US and Canada, that scientists are certain wouldn't have happened without human-made climate change. And to give you an idea, so this is, and this is a rare event today. So this is still something that wouldn't, wouldn't occur too frequently, thank God. But if we warmed the global thermostat further, so if we went to two degrees Celsius, such an event could happen every five to 10 years, or events that could be even more severe than that. So we will, if, if we, it, our planet is a slowly responding system. So we will, even if we start all action now to, uh, to get us on a trajectory towards limiting warming to one and a half degrees, climate change would still get worse. It will get worse until we reach net zero emissions, which would be at kind of the best estimates that we have scientifically around mid-century. So climate, climate impacts would still intensify over the next decades. However, the intensification would slow down. It would get slower and slower. And, and at the point where we kind of bring global warming to a halt, most climate impacts, not all, would also currently move to a new kind of stable climate. And that's the choice we have, really. We can solve climate change within one generation on the realm of the Paris Agreement, or we can have to deal with climate change for centuries to come. Because if we fail to do so, impacts will ever more intensify and warming will continue 
probably throughout this whole century and beyond, leaving an, a very a planet very different than what we know today to you know our grandchildren and beyond. So one one big thing that you like to prioritize, of course, your basis in your academic research that you do. So what would you say is a really big key in having importance of research in academia for your topic, as well as how can governments benefit that research as well? Well, it's I think I think there are different entry points. So I think it is it is important for governments to and for the global public to understand what we're dealing with when we're dealing with the climate crisis and what you know the consequences of inaction or insufficient action are. And the climate crisis is a crisis where going in the right direction but too slow is also wrong. Like doing nothing is, of course, kind of heading towards a catastrophe, but doing too little also doesn't help. We really need, like we're dealing with the laws of physics and we are, they, they are not negotiable. So there's no middle ground towards you know getting to zero emissions. What is also equally important is, of course, to try uh, and, and support finding solutions, finding solutions in terms of, you know, reducing emissions, illustrating how the global transformation can look like, and also what the co-benefits are for wider sustainable development. But then at the same time, also kind of supporting communities, policymakers, municipalities across all levels in terms of their actions to adapt to climate change, because it's not an option to, you know, just sit out and, and try to to sit through the storm, we also need to change our, our lives and we need to protect ourselves against the impacts that are upon us. And we need to change the way our cities are constructed. We need to really transform our societies into a climate resilient society going forward. And this also requires a lot of science and a lot of dialogue with society. And I'm quite excited about this. I, I find it extremely interesting to, to kind of engage with actors from all different levels, from youth activists to local municipality policymakers to the global level and understand their perspectives on the problem and how climate change is interacting with the things they are dealing with uh, and how my science can support them and hopefully, you know, striving for a better uh, climate resilient future for all of us. That's a great point when you talk about not just sitting through the storm, but actually taking action. And finally, bringing this issue back to Long Island, thinking about the geography and the features we have here. How will climate change and issues you've been talking about impact people on Long Island? And what is something you wish people would know about climate change in general? Well, one thing that that, that comes to mind immediately is, of course, the issue of, of sea level rise. It's it's not the only one, but it is, it is, it is one that's very pertinent. And there is something that is an aspect, you know, that we probably not talk about enough in terms of our standing and how we're changing global coastlines. You, you can never really know what kind of stays in human history from your generation. But what we know for sure is that our climate legacy will be felt at the global coastline for centuries to come. So sea level rise, because of the slow processes of the ocean and the big ice sheets in Greenland and Antarctica, will continue to rise for centuries, if not millennia, even you know, after our emissions have long ceased. We've done a study just to, to illustrate that, for example, and every five years in delay of climate action now, well, not 2020, but 2025, not 2025, but 2030, and so on, within 2,300, so that's, you know, far away, but it's a very steady process, leads to about 20 centimeters of global sea level rise. That doesn't sound much, but it's as much as we have had over the last 250 years. And it's a commitment, it's a legacy, you know, humans in centuries to go, and certainly the population of Long Island, will feel the consequences of our actions today long beyond anything else that, that probably will last from us. And I think that's, you know, climate change is a lot about the urgency of action and 
big, big urgency in tackling that problem and also tackling all the impacts that we see around the globe. But when we take a step back and look at this earth system as a whole and then sea level, but also big, big ice using glaciers are, you know, very strong signs of this. There's a legacy, a legacy that we live on that planet. And coastal communities will, will will be very much at the front line of this legacy. Well, Doctor, thank you so much for taking the time with us today. We learned a lot from this discussion and we're excited to bring you on your airwaves. Thanks a lot. Pleasure.